I V M. Before we move on with this episode of the Scene in the Unseen, do check out another awesome podcast from IVM Podcast, Cyrus Says, hosted by my old buddy Cyrus Brocha. What is the purpose of philosophy? Many of the big questions that human beings ask themselves have easy answers in religion. Other questions from the past have been answered by science. Art and literature do a fantastic job of illuminating and illustrating the human condition. So who needs philosophy? And hey, is that itself a philosophical question? If so, do we need to answer it? Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once said that all of Western philosophy was nothing more than a series of footnotes to Plato. From this, you can gather two things. One, unlike other fields, philosophy does not seem to have made that much progress in the last two thousand years. I would argue, though, that this is not quite true. The second thing that quotation tells you is that Plato was a rock star. And indeed, while reading Rebecca Goldstein's superb book Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, I was struck. By what a foundational thinker Plato really was, he asked many big questions that still drive philosophical inquiry today, and he anticipated insights that were given proper shape many centuries later. For example, we think of the social contract as a concept that was formulated during the Enlightenment, and the field of game theory is something that came about in the 20th century. So my eyes almost popped out of my head when I read a dialogue of Plato in which Glaucon, elder brother of Plato and a minor character in this dialogue, describes what is basically a game theoretic argument for a social contract. And Plato's dialogues, as I discovered in Goldstein's excellent book, are full of such seemingly modern arguments and insights. Plato at the Googleplex is a book that really has two intersecting parts. Half the book is a series of illuminating essays on Plato, his times, his philosophy, the impact of his work. The other half is a series of fictionalized dialogues of Plato set in current times and modern venues like the Googleplex, and these are quite witty and entertaining. Besides introducing us to Plato, the book really makes an argument that philosophy is not an arcane academic discipline, but that it actually matters in this modern world, in these crazy times that we live in. I spoke to Goldstein in December 2018 when she was in Mumbai for the Times Lit Fest. We recorded in a room given to us by the organizers, and the venue was quite noisy. So please do excuse the quality of the recording. Before we get to it, though, a quick commercial break. Like me, are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls? Well, worry no more. Head on over to IndianColors.com. Indian Colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in India and adapts them into objects of everyday use. These include wearable art like stoles and shrugs, home decor like cushion covers and table runners, and accessories like tote bags. This allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price, and artists get royalties on sales just like authors do. What's more, Indian Colors now has an exciting range of new products, including fridge magnets with some stunning motifs, and salad bowls and platters made of mango wood. Their artists include luminaries like Babu Xavier, Vasvo X Vasvo, Brinda Miller, Dilip Sharma, Shruti Nelson, and Pradeep Mishra. They accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting, but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend, head on over to IndianColors.com. That's colors with an O U. And if you want a twenty percent discount, apply the code IVM twenty. That's IVM for IVM podcast. IVM twenty for a twenty percent discount at IndianColors dot com. Rebecca, welcome to the scene and the unseen. It's very very good to be here with you and to be in conversation with you. Right. Um, it's kind of intimidating to actually have a dialogue with a woman who's written uh, Plato's dialogues, as you have in your uh, uh, recent book. I, I wanted to start by talking about what the philosopher Karl Jaspers calls the axial age, which is where you point out in your book that between uh, 800 BC to 200 BC, there was a sudden explosion of different quests to find answers to the question of what makes a life matter. And it showed up in all the different normative religions, the monotheisms that sprang up, and in philosophy in Greece. But my sort of question was, why during this particular period was there uh, this sudden quest? Yeah. So, you know, when I 
approach this question of why the ancient Greeks had this massive explosion of uh, of creative ideas, you know, and they're credited with laying down the foundations of Western civilization. You know, it, it, it occurred to me that this didn't happen in a vacuum, that this was happening, you know, in many places on the globe, and that all of the the normative paradigms, you know, meaning the, the paradigms that uh, people refer to when they're trying to give meaning and purpose to their lives, whether it's religious or secular, were formulated uh, during this period. That uh, was actually a philosopher, a German philosopher of the 20th century named uh, uh, Jaspers. Uh, he was the first to notice uh, and to name the axial age, that, that, that there was this great creative, uh, normative uh, ferment during this this period. And so the question is, you know, why did it happen then? And social scientists are just beginning to look at this. There hasn't been a great deal of attention given to it. I mean, after all, it was it was one of those things that was pointed out by philosophers, that something amazing was going on uh, during this uh, this period. It seems like the most important uh, uh variable was that uh, simply that people were well fed. Uh, Pascal Boyard at, in, in France has uh, plotted the caloric intake and all over the globe at that time. And indeed, the countries that participated in what we call the Axial Age, uh, which was India, uh, in uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism were formulated during this period. China Confucianism and Taoism were formulated this period, and and Greece, philosophy and tragic uh, poetry, uh, which was their response to this, uh, to these to these questions of uh, what it is that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. These were all, and and also the Judean hills, you know, where the Abrahamic approach was formulated. Uh, Persia, Zoroastrianism, all of these places that participated and forged these frameworks that are still extant today, uh, claiming all of us in one way or the other, including someone like me, who's a secularist, you know, so I trace my roots back to ancient uh, Greece. Um, they were all well-fed. And what we learned from this Because is, of the shift to agriculture around exactly, 1000 BC. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly right. And so, um, you know, what we learned from this is, you know, when people don't have to be preoccupied 24-7 on and seeing another dawn and, you know, just getting enough food in their bellies, uh, they start thinking about this question of, uh, you know, here I am and, you know, and what is it that I ought to be doing with my life, you know, and so any of these questions have that word ought in them, we call normative in, in philosophy. And it, it comes very, uh, it comes very naturally to our species as soon as we're freed uh, from the, you know, the constant uh, trials of simply surviving. Um, it, these other features of the... You've also places, pointed out that it correlates with urbanization, Exactly. These were highly organized city-states, right. um, and they had standing armies. They had coinage. They had slavery. They had trading. You know, this is so important, right? So they were mixing with different people, different cultures, different ways of thinking, which makes us humans think, well, what what's the right way of thinking about our lives, right? Here are these different uh, uh, traditions, different uh, goals. What's the right way? It comes, it comes quite quite naturally to us. Um, and uh, also in these cities, um, there was uh, more anonymity. I had the great privilege, I don't think I wrote about it in the book because I don't think I had had yet this experience, of um, visiting one of the last of the hunter-gatherer tribes, of spending a little time with them in Tanzania, the Hadza. And it was very interesting. First of all, they have to really, every day they wake up and they have to fulfill their caloric needs. I mean, and it's it's very difficult. Um, But one of the things that was very clear is um, they lived in great intimacy with each other everybody clearly mattered in that village right it's sort of a it's a family it's it's how this is what we have come from of, of intimate village life and when in these big city states and there's more anonymity 
this question also, I think, is exacerbated. Well, you know, who am I? What can I do to achieve some sense of uh, of mattering in the universe? In the village life, you matter. You know, it's everybody has their position. So all of these things come together. I don't think it's just a matter of caloric intake. Uh, I think it's it's it's, it's more complicated than that. But we see it in all of these places. Uh, oh, there was also a scribe class. So there was written language in all it. You know, there was written... And, and there was coinage, like you've pointed out in your book. So Yes, yeah. it, there was coinage, exactly. Uh, which is a way of um, also increasing the sense of sort of mm, anonymity. When there's coinage, then there's disparities of wealth. But, you know, we, we all have this existential need, even the poor among us, right, of, of wanting our lives to, to mean something. They mean everything to us. And, and the, <laughs> the, the interesting thing about this axial age is that most, except one, most of the sort of normative traditions that were forming were teleological. You know, they were they had a god at their center or gods or whatever. And the only exception really was the birth of philosophy in ancient Greece. Yes. And is it because their gods were very messed up? That's what I think. Their gods were really... Um, I, I, I'm thinking of... A, I mean, they were... Kind of assholes. Can I say that? Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, they really yeah. were, right? Um, and it was, a, it was extremely interesting. You know, we think of the Greeks as, you know, philosophers. Of course they weren't philosophers. They were not a society of philosophers. There's never been a society of philosophers. They gave, you know, certain among them, uh, were, were philosophers and they gave, uh, birth to this way of approaching the normative questions, but we can never forget. That it was the Athenian society, which is the best of the Greek city-states, right, that put Socrates to death. I mean, there was a democracy that voted. His fellow citizens voted to put him to death. So this was not a society of, they regretted it afterwards, right? But uh, after his death, we find many little statues of Socrates. They regretted it. Uh, but because of certain things that had happened uh, after they lost the Peloponnesian War, uh, their war with another city-state, Sparta, um, uh, they, they, they didn't have tolerance for, for Socrates with his skeptical questions anymore, asking them or demanding that they question their own normative values, which were not philosophical, but rather something that I call the ethos of the extraordinary, that what they had produced uh, was this view that in order to really matter, you have to make a name for yourself uh, so that knowledge of your life will be replicated in future generations or in your contemporaries. And this gives a certain moreness to your life, you know, so so fame and glory, what they call kleos. Uh, and so that this was this was their way of pursuing it. Any way that you could be replicated in the minds of others um, would make your life worth living. And he was attacking that, uh, Socrates. And, and I found it very interesting how you point out that because their gods are such assholes, yes. unlike other peoples elsewhere, you don't want the attention of your god. Instead, so you want to raise your own renown, like Cleos, uh, one way of uh, translating, which I found very nice, uh, acoustic renown is... Uh, how you mentioned it, so that more people hear of you. Yes. So they, they aspire to this ethos of the extraordinary, where they want to do extraordinary things, so that in, in their own society they are famous. It's, Cleos kind of sounds like very Instagram, Twitter kind of... Uh, exactly. Yes, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, in some sense, we are post-theistic society, right? Um, and the more educated we are, the more uh, we don't think of our lives in, ter in terms of uh, theism. Um, but what we seem to have gone back to, the default is the pre-philosophical Athenian of you, which is to be replicated in the minds right. of others. And it's extremely interesting, and I'm writing about this in my new book, but uh, you know that we are um, we're a species that really looks from for attention one way or the other, right? That this is, and in fact, even the way we've evolved, we can, we have, you know, neuroscientists have now shown us that we have special areas of the brain, special neurons that are devoted to being able to see when people are looking directly at us. Those neurons will fire if, if people's eyes are directly on us. A few inches, a few centimeters, either way, other neurons will fire. So we have this detection system, right, of, of 
when people are paying attention to us, and I, you know, I've had experience with, with little babies, my own and other years, little babies, for such an early age, they are making eye contact, extreme eye contact. We're so dependent. Uh, we're a gregarious species. We're very, very dependent uh, on the care of others for a very long time. We have a very long childhood and, and adolescence. It gets longer and longer. I know 45-year-olds now who are still adolescents, but that's another story. But so this dependence on on our own kind makes us very susceptible to attention. Um, so what we see in the axial age with these gods that most of, you know, how do we want to feel that we matter? It's put in terms of, you know, sort of the gods. But the Greeks were very special because the way that their stories of their gods develop, you don't want too much attention from these gods. Something bad always happens uh, when a god pays too much attention to you. So you want to be glorious, but not so glorious so that the gods feel that you're competition. I think of them because I had older brothers and sisters, you know, that uh, the, the Greek gods are sort of like older brothers and sisters. You know, mm -hmm. they want you to emulate them and to revere them. And But then if you start to surpass them, they're going to slap you back into your place very, very quickly. So um, it's uh, the, the Greek gods are something like this. So they develop this, this kind of... They, it was a highly religious society, saturated with religious rituals, but those were mostly to appease the gods, you know, to their apotropaic, that is, warding off evil. You don't, you know, so, so don't pay too much attention, and I'm, I'm, I'm paying proper respect to you. But in terms of what they wanted, the attention that they wanted to make them feel like they matter, it was from fellow citizens and from future generations. So do something big so that the poets will sing of you, which was their social media of the day, the poets. And, and, and sort of the fascinating turning point, uh, which is also at the heart of your book, Plato at the Googleplex, is when from Cleos we come to the concept of Areta. Yes, yes. And so Arete is, uh, you know, what... Excellence, our word aristocracy, you know, comes from from this world, the the rule of the excellent. Which Benjamin is what Java it, translated it as virtue, but as you pointed out, that doesn't capture all its uh, flavors. Exactly. So it originally had meant this, you know, sort of excellence. You could you could talk about the arete of uh, of a knife, of a knife or of a horse, um, you know. So it was the excellence of this thing in, in ancient Greek, and it's really. Um, the influence of the philosophers of Socrates and of Plato, where they're how it becomes to how it comes to mean virtue rather than any kind of of, of excellence, uh, because part of uh, the attack of the philosophers on the normative framework um, of their society, why Socrates was put to death, uh, was that. It, the claim is, you know, not just any kind of chaos uh, will do the trick. Um, it has to be, parity has to be true excellence. And what they argue for is that true excellence consists in knowledge, wisdom, virtue, justice, courage, you know, the virtues. So the, the term undergoes this transformation. Uh, and, you know, by the time we get to the Gospels, uh, you know, written in, in, in Greek, arete simply means, you know, virtue. It just means virtue. It does, it's, it's, and this is the transformation that these philosophers who are writing, well, not Socrates, he didn't write, but, but Plato, Aristotle, and the philosophers who follow them, that this was a transformation of, of the word. In fact, you point out how, you know, Plato, Socrates is sort of begins to take arete away from Cleos or the recognition, and sort of shows that it can exist independent of uh, recognition, that you can be virtuous even if no one else sees your virtue. Exactly. And I, I want to quote a great, uh, uh, a very nice passage that kind of illustrates that from your book. Um, start quote, in the Gorgias, is that the right way to pronounce it? That's, yes, good. <laughs> <laughs> in the Gorgias, Socrates is presented as asserting something so radical that his hearers think it has to be a joke. He would, he says, rather be treated unjustly than treat others unjustly. 
But if arete is conceived of as analogous to the health of the body, then Socrates' statement is hardly absurd. The injustice that we do involves us far more intimately than the injustice that we suffer. I don't only act out of character, my character reacts to my actions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is this, um, it, it gets transformed in the Socratic Platonic, uh, attack on, on, on their own society's, uh, values, um, into, yeah, it, it, it's something internal. Uh, it's not the applause. It's not outer attention. In fact, you know, you may be getting no applause whatsoever. You may be getting a brimming cup of hemlock, as Socrates got, you know, that, and yet, uh, it's this, if your character is being transformed in the right direction, this, this is what, what counts. And, you know, and then the, the, the whole question becomes, well, what is the right direction? What are the virtues? How do we know? How do we judge? Uh, what are the right virtues? You know, which becomes, you know, a central theme of, of philosophy. And what is really knowledge? You know, becomes a central theme of epistemology. So philosophy is off often running with this transformation of, you know, from the, the um, attention and approbation of your fellow citizens uh, to know that that's not a reliable means of judging whether you're living your life as you ought to live it. And in fact, it's something uh, far more private, something that takes a tremendous amount of striving, but not striving uh, just to be replicated in other people's minds. In fact, you may be in the eyes of your uh, fellow citizens, a nobody, a failure, a loser, um, to use one of the favorite phrases of our current president of the United States, you know, loser, everybody's a loser. Sad. Sad. <laughs> yes. um, you know, and uh, yeah, so you know, this is a very good example. I mean, I'm somehow, you know, being American, everything nowadays comes back to Trump, right? He colonizes our minds in a terrible way. But yet you look at this life, I mean, this is a person who is after um, Cleos, um, attention, outward attention in the biggest way possible. He has to be thought of by every citizen, every citizen on the globe, every human being, and, and he is. Um, is this a successful life? By Greek standards, yes. You know, by pre-philosophical, the Homeric ethos of the extraordinary, yes, he's an extraordinary person, right? He is replicated in all of our minds. Um, you know, what would Socrates and Plato have to say about him? We know it. Socrates and Plato would have to say about him. And the fact that so many of us would echo Socrates and Plato's opinion um, of, of, of this kind of kleos, this outward domination of the world consciousness, shows how much um, philosophy has in fact uh, infiltrated uh, our minds. This is one of the, the theme, you know, this, the um, subtitle of this book is Why Philosophy Won't go away. And this is an ongoing argument I have in my background is in science. I come from a science, you know, from physics and mathematics. Um, most of my friends and all of my husbands have been themselves scientists. And so this question of um, what is philosophy adding here? And it's very hard to see philosophical progress because it's the progress with which we see. You know, those of us who are judging a person like Trump to be, you know, a failure. He's calling everybody a loser, but that he's a loser himself in the true sense, in the biggest sense, a waste of the human life, um, and a waste of tremendous privilege and resources. Um, why are we doing this? I mean, this, this, this is a, a, a kind of progress that was begun with Socrates and Plato's, uh, argument with the values of their own society. And that has, uh, you know, continued and infiltrated all of our. In, in fact, a very funny illustration of uh, this progress of philosophy in your book, where you have all these dialogues with Plato in modern settings, is when he's at the Googleplex and he's surprised to learn that slavery is no more. Yeah. And yeah. he is charmed and beguiled by the arguments against slavery that the person who is with him gives him. Yes. And, 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 and she, of course, you know, I made her. It's a little bit of comic relief, right? But she's the meteor escort when a writer is on a book tour. Somebody meets them in each city and takes them around to all of their events. And, um, and they, they tend to be usually, you know, very amusing people and, you know, charming. But, 
you know, not not intellectuals really. And I so my media escort in and this is, and is kind of telling how this very flaky kind of person yes, is actually giving such a solid philosophical argument, which has come from Plato himself. In exactly, a sense. in in some sense, because how does philosophy make progress? We don't make progress in terms of um, experiments or you know laboratory empirical. It's not an empirical science, clearly. Um, but the way we make progress here is, you know, we, we keep seeing the implications of um, commitments that we've already made. And the strongest being commitments to our own life, that we ourselves feel that we matter, or in any case, we want to matter. It matters to us whether we matter. That is what it is to pursue a life. Your life has to matter to you in order just to pursue it. Um, what are the... What what, what follows from this? And and so many times we don't see what follows from this and we, we're inconsistent. And that's exactly how philosophy makes progress, by looking at things that we've already committed ourselves to that we can't live our lives without committing ourselves to and seeing how we we are inconsistent, that, that, that it, this has consequences, logical consequences, and you know, we don't see them. And that's, in, in fact, this was this, uh, this is why the reductio ad absurdum, this form of argument, was the favored form of Socrates, right? He developed this, you know, here you're committed to this, Here's your, here are your premises, and yet you're not committed to this. Do you see the inconsistency? And he, he would point out to people their inconsistencies, which didn't win him great. And Hilarity. <laughs> didn't work out well for the poor guy. And, and and part of the reason why it didn't work out well for him is because the Athenian sense of Arita was tied up with the state. You had to have the validation of the state. And there's another quote which, uh, you know, if you replace Athenian with, say, American, the quote might still make sense. Uh, start quote, Athenian superiority drew itself to more superiority, intensifying its sense of its own exceptionalism, which typically happens with imperial powers. Stop quote. Yes, exactly. Yes. So this is, uh, you know, it, it was a great, if you have a, a society whose, whose normative framework is built on, you know, everybody has to be exceptional. Well, the big problem is, of course, most of us are not exceptional, right? They we're perfectly, by, yes. I mean, by definition, we're ordinary, most yeah. of us. And so what, you know, what did you do? Well, you, I call it, participatory exceptionalism. You know, you're participating in an exceptional, city-state. Um, and of course, uh, Athens was the most. It, it was a, a given premise, a firm premise among all of the uh, ancient Greeks of no matter what city-state, that they were the best in the world, right? This comes very naturally to our species. And, um, you know, in fact, their word for a foreigner is barbarian because, and it comes from their word for blah, 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 what, you know, just is bar, bar, bar. You know, you can't understand what they're saying. So they're barbarians, right? And it simply meant not Greek speakers. Uh, and so, but there was that, that kind of, uh, uh, implication, lesser. They're lesser people. And then among these exceptional Greek speakers, the most exceptional, the, the creme de la creme, were the Athenians, right? And it was, it was a, an imperial power. They were an imperialist over their fellow Greek city-states. And they were also a great draw for their, um, uh, for all of the the most creative people. So, you know, Aristotle was not born in, in Athens. He came to Athens. He came to Athens to study in Plato's Academy, the first Euro European university that was founded by by Plato. Um, and so the, there was this, this sense that the way you can achieve something big and extraordinary is by being a citizen of an extraordinary state. So there's this nationalist fervor that is ex so strong because the whole existential um, longing uh, to, to make something of your life was tied tied up in this. And this is a way, of course, that we all, it's a way we all try to do it by the group we belong to, you know, that this is a way of, rather than the values that we cultivate within our soul, uh, the group that we, we belong and, to. And, and where Plato, Socrates kind of moved away from this was by saying that it, it was in a sense by rejecting the Athenian notion of arete yeah. and saying that virtue comes not from belonging to an exceptional state, but from knowledge. And I found it very fascinating where you uh, talk about the sublime braid which is the connection between truth and beauty and virtue. 
and and the notion that from knowledge arises virtue can you can you explain that to me so it's yeah then the yeah the, the the truth uh beauty and goodness are entwined with each other this is so fundamental in plato one of the reasons i like plato um although i do not think that everything he said was right clearly not right but again how could i think that philosophy makes progress and think that everything plato said was right no we can we've made so much progress we can look back at plato and say no you were wrong about this this and this uh but and and many other things but something that's very fundamental about him he changed his mind many times and this discipline that he really founded for us is a very self-critical it's reason but a, everything is open to reason everything has to be justified um and so it there's there's a great self-critical capacity that has to be cultivated in order to be a philosopher i i feel that like any philosopher who hasn't changed her mind many times over the course of her life is really not being a good philosopher uh because you know this is this is this is critical this self-criticism um so but one of the things that stays permanent with him is that what i call the sublime braid the 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 intertwining of these three most important things for him truth and beauty and goodness um and that they all are connected they're embedded with each other you can't achieve any one without the other so for example um how can we tell that something is is true there's be a beautiful explanation uh so if we have you know two or more explanations that are um that can accommodate all of the things that we're trying to explain all of the evidence we go with the most beautiful one the the most elegant one the most, this in some sense the simplest one but there's an aesthetic evaluation of um that as a as a criterion for truth now i come from a background in physics and that that is very very apparent in physics you know that uh when we for example uh turned away from the uh geocentric view that the heavens all revolved around the earth um and moved the copernican revolution to the heliocentric uh universe both systems could accommodate all of the empirical evidence the movements of the planets and all of this but one of them was really messy you had to keep adding more and more epicycles it was mathematically grotesque right and one all you had to do was change the orientation and make uh the sun the center with the earth moving and the everything became the explanation itself became beautiful became mathematically simple we still this is still the case you know so for you know all the way you know with relativity theory when einstein proposed the general theory of relativity he had very little empirical evidence for it what he had was beautiful mathematics the the mathematics is stunning the theory itself is stunning and when it it, it he was proposed uh, the general theory was published in 1915 um it had to wait until 1919 until he had any empirical evidence for it they needed a complete eclipse a solar eclipse so that they could see whether or not I won't, I won't go into it. So I, I I I get that connection between truth and beauty that a certain truth about the universe is expressed beautifully by e is equal to mc square say but how does knowing that translate to virtue to virtue so here is what plato believed um he believed that if we really assimilate truth um which takes um first of all that itself takes virtue it takes taming of the ego right because we have a great tendency to believe what's true what uh, if it most flatters ourselves uh, our place in society our place in the universe i mean why did we think that the earth had to be at the center of the universe with all the heavens revolving around us right it flatters our our sense of importance in the cosmos you know so just to be able to attain the truth means you have to subdue the ego somewhat right but that also when we see the truth 
our perspective is so broadened. We see ourselves uh, in this greatest perspective, the grandest perspective, and that itself, you know, expands our virtue, gives us uh, a tolerance, and we don't take ourselves so damn seriously, right? I mean, this is this is the aim of ethics. To we we see ourselves in some perspectives, in regard with other uh, of our fellow citizens and fellow creatures and our planet itself, our cosmos itself. Um, this is what it is to be virtuous. So yeah, so that's how these things all become inter intertwined. I, I just wanted to say this this one thing that Einstein had said when he finally was brought the evidence um, for the general theory of relativity that the, the yes light the mass of uh, the mass of the sun actually did shift light in the way that he had predicted. And it was a huge, you know, success for this theory. And so a philosopher of science, um, Hans Reichenbach, asked him, how did you feel when you finally got news that your theory had been uh, uh, vindicated? And he said, oh, no, I already knew it had to be true because it's so beautiful. So, you know, the empirical evidence just didn't even matter so much. So, you know, this... And, and this we can trace all the way back to Plato. On, on that elegant note, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be back in a minute. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a great week on IVM Podcast. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We launched our listener survey last week, and uh, we'd like you to really participate in that if you haven't already. We're offering a free mug for a few select winners if you fill out the survey and give us your email address. So go to the website, ivmpodcast.com slash survey, and there's a link over there to filling out the survey. Please do, and we'd really appreciate that. On Cyrus Says, Cyrus's guest is policy professional Meghnath as Meghnath sheds light on working with parliamentarians, some trivia about our laws, and his new podcast, How to Citizen. On How to Citizen, we're on Chapter 6, Understanding Our Criminal Justice System. The guest for the episode is comedian Aishwarya Mohanraj. The host and Aishwarya ponder the inequalities of justice and what would be a way to put it right. On Simplified, Chuck and Shrike take another look at Brexit and the predicaments in store for the UK in March. On Pulia Bazi, the hosts are in conversation with Dr. Alok Shukla, who served as Deputy Election Commissioner to investigate the Indian electoral process. On the Habit Coach podcast, Ashton talks about how the technique of box breathing helps fight anxiety. And with that, let's continue with your show. Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. Um, you know, one of the most revelatory points while uh, reading your book was that way back then, uh, when all the other normative uh, religions were sort of taking root, uh, you had Socrates basically demolishing the notion of God by asking Euthyphro. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Euthyphro. Euthyphro. Yes. Euthyphro. Yeah. This fantastic question where he says, "Quote: Is what is holy holy because the gods approve it, or do they approve it because it's holy?" Yeah. This is question mark. This is, uh, this is fantastic. It's one of Plato's early dialogues, and. The argument that Socrates uh, puts forth there, or that Plato has Socrates putting forth there, is uh, has been repeated by uh, freethinkers um, throughout the ages. You know, Spinoza, who's a, a great favorite philosopher of mine, the 17th century uh, Jewish uh, rationalist philosopher, very much following in the footsteps of Plato. Um, you know, it's repeated by him, and in our own day, Sam Harris, you know, repeats this argument, and people don't always attribute it to Plato, but he's the one who first formulated this extremely elegant argument. Just for the listeners, I'll kind of quickly explain what it's essentially saying is that if there are normative moral codes that you follow because a god tells you to follow it... Uh, are you doing that because he, like, is he telling you to do good things because there is reason uh, for those to be good? In which case, those reasons are enough in themselves. You don't need the God. Exactly. And if there are no reasons, then why do it? Then why do it? I mean, if it's simply a caprice of God, you know, uh, a whim, you know, do this, you know, give charity to the widow and to the orphan um, rather than, you know, uh, persecute them. Um, there's no, there's no uh, additional reason that dictates this moral choice, does that really answer the question we're asking when we want to know what makes good actions good, what makes evil evil? Uh, just the whims and caprices of an immoral God. So, no, we feel not. You know, we feel, no, there's a reason God wants us to do this rather than that. Well, then if there's the reason, that's the reason, and God is redundant. Exactly. It's a very elegant argument. Um, and um, 
uh, you know, I've been sometimes uh, uh, against my will in certain debates with theists who want to argue there can be no morality without God. And, you know, this is an argument that I have had to face uh, so many times. And when, you, you know, you give them, for me, the best response is Plato's argument, you know, exactly. 2,400 years ago, pre-Christian, pre-Jewish, pre, you know, but that it's, uh, yeah, it's a very, very elegant argument. And this brings me to my next question, which is really puzzling, which is that you have this outbreak of what we would call rationality in this period where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are doing well. Yeah. And then you have this long sort of interval until the Enlightenment in the 18th century yes. before you have that. Kind of, and the rest of the time is all uh, all of those religions, those monotheistic cults, all of that uh, thinking you should have, you would think would go away with Plato's question. At least the rationalism would survive. But it disappears for s several hundred years. Why is that? Why is that? Well, you know, partly... You know, one of the problems with, uh, with this religion of reason, you could, could almost call it, right? Or a, a normativity of reason, um, is that it's, uh, requires a, a lot of hard work. It requires education. Um, you don't get the most comforting answers from it, right? Uh, you, you know, it's, it depends on us. It's very human centric. It makes, the universe, a kind of cold and uncaring place, an impersonal place. It's not surprising it broke out in, in ancient Greece, given what they thought of their gods, which were, they're downright, you know, hostile to us. But um, it's, it doesn't, whereas the, you know, the Judeo-Christian Muslim view, which captured the world, it's very powerful. It gives us a sense of cosmic significance. Um, now, I, I myself had started out that way. I was born into an extremely religious family. I know what it feels like to make the transition of feeling, you know, that God is watching everything I do, which is terrifying because, I mean... Creepy. It's creepy. <laughs> so you, really, there's no privacy <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. And also, you know, he's a very stern God. He's judging if you do. And, and, you know, in Judaism, which was my birth religion, it's, you know, there are laws for absolutely everything, laws specifically for women to keep them in their place. And uh, these rankled me very much. These did not go down well with, with me. Uh, but... Um, but one thing you never doubt, and is that is that you matter. I mean, because you matter to the Lord of the universe. He created you intentionally. He has designed, you know, he, he created you rather than somebody else. So you have your place in the universe. You know what I was saying about that village uh, that, you know, that, that predates the, the axial age. In some sense, it makes the universe a village, you know, that we all... Have, I've never thought of that before, actually, but that, that we all have our place, you know, with the, the head chief, you know, is is there, and he had a reason. Always for a man. It. Always a man. Always a man, and he had, uh, you know, he has he has designs on us, and it's 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 a comforting, and it sort of replicates, you know, what where we came from, that tribal village life. So it's. It is our default, I, I think. And reason is pushing against that. And so I think it was such a powerful replication of the village intimacy, uh, only on the cosmic scale that was presented uh, to the world. It's not, not surprising. Also, it promises us an afterlife. I mean, it, it makes us extremely... You know, it assuages some of our deepest fears, which is that, you know, in, in the great scheme of things, we're really not so, so very much. No, we don't want to feel that. Uh, and we, we, we fear death, all of these things. And it really palliates our, and speaks to our deepest fears. Well, one of the interesting, uh, points that you, the arguments that you address in, in the introduction to your book, in fact, is, about how people often say that philosophy, even today, is just a set of footnotes to Plato, yes. for example. And people therefore make the argument, including I'm sure some of your scientist friends, that science has progressed so much. Yes. You know, no one would say that science is like footnotes to Pythagoras or whoever. Yes. And uh, But with philosophy, we keep going back to Plato and finding it very relevant. And you can actually begin an argument there. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say to that? 
several things. I think that, you know, it was Alfred North Whitehead, um, a 20th century philosopher and logician who had said that one, the truest thing you can say about Western philosophy is that it consists of a series of books to Plato. And this is a very good soundbite, but like most soundbites, it's a gross oversimplification. I mean, what you can say about Plato and the reason that he's so very important is that he had a real sense for what the philosophical questions were and what answers a philosophical question and what doesn't answer a philosophical question. Um, and he found philosophical questions lurking in every area. So he lays out the landscape of philosophy that we can say, the different areas, you know, philosophy of religion that we spoke about a little bit and, you know, and, and theory of knowledge, epistemology, moral philosophy, political philosophy, you know, all these different, and but that there are always these philosophical questions that arise that are not one with the, the fields themselves. They're meta questions. They're about the field philosophy of science, you know. So it's, it's not that he laid out all of the answers. As I say, we can look back and see how many mistakes he made. I mean, his theory of forms, I don't know anybody who, who, who holds by this philosophy of language. Um, he asked the important questions and he proposed his theory of form. What is a meaning? How does a word acquire meaning? And he had this theory of forms. We have philosophy of language now, very complicated, very sophisticated. It's not Platonic, right? It's not, Plato's answers are not the answers, but Plato's questions time and again are the questions. Um, but we've made, we've made progress with them. Um, the other thing is the more scientific progress we make, the more philosophical questions are churned up by the scientific progress. Um, and so, you know, in fact, as you say, philosophy raises the proto-scientific questions. That, that is, yes. So often, philosophers will, will, will first ask the scientific question that kind of um, motivates the science, and, 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 and finally the methodology emerges that could, that could answer these questions. Um, but that's not its only role. It also looks at what science, you know, the current science of the day is telling us, and helps to determine what it's answering and what it's not answering. So, so for something like, for example, neuroscience. Um, so we've learned so much more about uh, consciousness, you know, through cognitive science and through neuroscience. We can map the brain and see where different uh, aspects of consciousness, where they're located. And, uh, you know, I think neuroscience has made it extremely probable that consciousness is a brain process, right? That it's, it, 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 is, it is a material physical process. Um, has it thereby eliminated uh, the notion of uh, agency, that we are actually in control of our actions? Um, has it shown that we can possibly be free, that the sense that we have of actually making choices, of, of just deliberating and deciding um, is an illusion? Um, so th this is a philosophical question. So look at what science has so far established and then see what it implies, what it doesn't imply, what's, what's still open. Scientists are often, um, very eager to, to interpret their findings in the broadest way possible. Uh, so you'll find many neuroscientists saying, you know, I mean, We've answered all of these philosophical questions. And that's where people trained in philosophy, you know, they have to look, know the science, be trained in the science, but ask the philosophical question, does it really entail uh, what the scientists are saying that it entails? I mean, in physics, which was the, the, the uh, science, uh, scientific field that I most interested in, that I had most studied uh, in university, um, there is, you know, we have this very strange theory, quantum mechanics, and we don't quite know how to interpret it. And, uh, you know, when I was taking my physics courses, there was one view, you know, about quantum mechanics, which is was associated with Niels Bohr. Uh, it was called Copenhagen interpretation, which is that, you know, things don't exist until you measure them. Um, so to ask where is the particle uh, before it's measured, where, you know, where had it been before, is a meaningless question. Um, th now, this is a philosophical view. And what happened was philosophers began to 
examine this view and say, look, here's quantum mechanics, here's what you found. The interpretation of quantum mechanics, this is philosophical. Is it good philosophy? And they're the ones who really prodded physicists so that they came up with other interpretations as well. There's the Bohmian interpretation, there's the multiverse interpretation. These things were first proposed uh, by, by philosophical thinking. So this is another way in which the more progress we make with our science and getting into stranger and stranger things um, to see what it implies and what it doesn't imply. And that, that is, that's the work I think very much of philosophy. What philosophy is after is our, to maximize our overall coherence, uh, to, to see what we know and what other possibilities that leaves open, closes off, to try to make us as consistent and, and coherent. That has always been the role of philosophy ever since Socrates was wandering around asking his annoying questions of his fellow citizens. And, and just speaking of those annoying questions and what the task of philosophy is, there's another great uh, passage from your book I'd like to quote, which is, quote, Truth cannot be transmitted from one mind to another. The pouring out of the full flask of a master into the passive receptacle of a student. Truth-seeking comes from the violent activity of philosophy, a drama enacted deep in the interior of each of us and which manages in its violence to deprive us of positions that may be so deeply and constitutively personal that we can't defend them to others. This violent activity is personal even as it leads one in an impersonal direction where interpersonal uh, agreement is possible. Stop quote. And, and this kind of also sort of describes the Socratic method of how he did his dialogues and asked questions and got down to the essence of everything. So my question to you is, would Socratic dialogue therefore be effective today in this polarized stage? Oh, I, I certainly, I certainly think so. He would get torn apart on Twitter, for example. Yeah. So, yes. He'd seem like a troll. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, the, the, one of the things uh, that I think is very true of the, the, the philosophical uh, enterprise is uh, the dialogue is extremely important. You know, it began with the dialogue. Socrates never even wrote, wrote anything down because he believed in the lived conversation. It has to be minds clashing with other minds. And that's the way these deep intuitions that we don't even realize we have uh, because they're, they're so deep down within us, that they can be brought to the fore, and other people who don't share your intuitions will say, defend them, account for them, tell us why I ought to believe in them. And then, you know, sometimes you realize you really have no reason whatsoever. And, and that that's how progress is made. One of the wonderful things that's happened in our own day is that, uh, you know, more and more people are brought into this conversation. A person like me, a woman, would not have been part of this conversation for very long. And I have seen over the course of my lifetime how this has changed. When I entered into philosophy, I was the only woman in the room, especially because I did philosophy of science, philosophy of mathematics. These were really considered unfeminine, right, uh, areas of philosophy. I was always the only woman in the room. I'm not anymore, right? There are many women. And this itself has brought philosophical questions into the conversation that were um, invisible uh, to men. Such things as? such as raising children, uh, you know, questions about what is the right way. You know, so children have been, is, have been um, care for the, the planet. I mean, uh, uh, the um, ecological concerns have become, you know, in general, for all of us, a very, very important part of uh, philosophy, but more applied, what we call applied ethics, uh, rather than just grand theories of ethics, applied ethics, you know, really specific questions uh, that are facing us have become much more prominent. Among like the trolley problem applied to autonomous cars, for uh, example. Uh, yes, yes, things of this sort that have, uh, um, for some reason, you know, that women have, have found this extreme less grand theories and more applied ethics, you know, that are, you know, so ecology, uh, family ethics, um, uh, medical ethics. You find many, many women in medical ethics. Um, so this, this is, this has been interesting to watch. And even the analogies that are, you know, we are always, uh, one of the things that we do to test our intuitions is to do thought experiments, you know, and they're pretty wacky often. Right? The trolley problem seems this is an example of, of a thought experiment. Um, the kinds of thought experiments that I hear now uh, being proposed are often 
you know, sort of coming from a woman's life, from a woman's perspective, a woman's uh, sense of, uh, um, of priorities. And so this, 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 so the wider, uh, the group, uh, that we bring in people from different cultures, different, um, the better, because we come, the different cultures, the different life experiences give us such different intuitions that are invisible to the person. Themselves. But why I brought up the Socratic notion of dialogue in the modern age was, does it worry you, for example, that in the last 10 years, what we've seen with social media and people living so much of their lives online, is that people shut themselves off in echo chambers, yeah. where they spend a lot of time posturing to raise their status within their in-group, but don't really talk to each other. They just talk past each yeah. other. Yeah, you know, when 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 uh, the World Wide Web, as we used to call it, was first, you know, proposed, this seemed the most liberating idea to a person like me. Oh, you know, now I can talk to people in India. I can talk to people, you know, in Afghanistan and in Saudi Arabia. And I do actually uh, talk to, I mean, it and can be used huge net way. benefit remains. Yes. You know, but... What we hadn't foreseen is what happened. You know, human nature, the worst of us, asserting itself um, in this new uh, social media range. And so these, these, these echo chambers, and you only search out your own, your own opinions, your own, that are, that are so uh, validated and strengthened uh, because everybody you're talking uh, agrees with this. So, and this is, of course, ex- the exact opposite of, of, of what the Socratic dialogue is supposed to be about, which is, so again, I, myself, it, it's interesting because psychologists have shown us that we, there's a, an endorphin uh, lift, there's a, a kind of surge. When you hear your own opinions uh, replicated in others, you feel good. And so... Um, so it's healthy to be in an echo chamber. Yes, it, it, it feels, yes, it feels good. And, you know, what, as soon as I read this, I, I started to read publications, you know, uh, newspapers and periodicals that are, that I very much disagree with, right? And yes, I feel angry. <laughs> you know, I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable reading these things. Um, but I, you know, I force myself to, and I force myself to think out well, what are they assuming uh, that I'm not assuming? How do I defend my assumptions uh, against their assumptions? It's a lot of work, right? This is a lot of work, but and it's uncomfortable and it doesn't feel so very good. But I think, I, I think that this is part of what it is to be an enlightened person. Uh, to be an enlightened person is to be aware of the things that you're assuming and that they're not necessarily true to other people. And do you really have good reasons? Could you convince them? What's the best that you could give them to try to change their minds? If we did that... Are you generally hopeful that we're moving in the right direction? No. Oh, I don't know. Yes, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. Okay, I don't well, know. one, I've taken enough of your time. I know you've got yeah. to go. So one, one kind of final question I've been waiting to ask, and you kind of alluded to it a while back. Um, do you believe in free will? Because when you talk about virtue coming from knowledge, yes. if you have complete knowledge, doesn't that then make philosophy meaningless and virtue moot? Oh, interesting. That's a, that's a deep, it's a deep question. You know, I believe in, you know, to believe that we have this ability to look at our own thought processes and be self-critical about them and change our mind about them um, without belief believing in that degree of freedom, um, you know, they, we, we can't make any, any sense out of what it is to be rational. So if we're committed to reason, we have to be committed to some degree of freedom. To at least the illusion of free will. Yeah, yeah. No, I think we have to be even more. It's like <laughs> if to, to, to say that there really is, you know, rational behavior, rational beliefs, justified belief than those which are irrational and unjustified um, that, and that therefore ought not to be believed, right? There is, there is a, a normative uh, uh, presupposition that's, that is uh, enfolded in epistemology itself. To be committed to that, we have to be committed to some degree of freedom. When I see, when I examine my own thought processes, because you come at me with these trenchant Questions and I say, well, I really don't know how to answer them. I better go back to the drawing board and rethink it, and maybe I will. I will change my mind. That is, that's a presumption of, of being a reasonable person at all. So, 
if you know what we've learned undermines reason itself, then we have no reason to even trust what we have learned, right? It, it's a it's a kind of pyrrhic victory. It will it will destroy any claims we have to uh, to truth, to knowledge, to reason. So, to that degree, I think uh, we have to we have to countenance free will. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you, thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, then you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at Plato Book Tour. All one word at Plato Book Tour. You can follow me on Twitter at Amit Verma. A M I T B A R M A. You can browse past episodes of the Seen and the Unseen at SeenUnseen.in and ThinkPragati.com. Thank you for listening. Hey Meghnath, do you know how to citizen? Hey Shreyas, do you know how to citizen? Hey Meghnath, do you know how to citizen? Hey Shreyas, let's just do a podcast about let's it. Let's do a podcast about it. A podcast is called How, how to, to citizen. citizen. In every episode, we get a new guest and discuss one chapter from the eighth grade civics textbook. Think about it as uh, three friends revising before a test. Uh, and we go back to school there's nostalgia there's trauma there are lunch breaks there are favorite teachers there are horrible teachers there's everything so every tuesday we bring in a guest on the podcast and we ask them a very simple question do you know how to citizen i make not i think the question is do you know how to citizen but shreyas i'm asking you this question do you know how to citizen <laughs> Hi listeners, we at Aditya Birla Sun Life Mutual Fund have come up with a special podcast series called MF 101 in collaboration with Bloomberg Quint. MF 101 is an informative series that will help you understand the recipe behind mutual fund investments. And what's more, it's coming from the chefs of the mutual fund buffet table, from the very own fund managers and analysts who are the manufacturers of the funds that help you realize your investment goals. New episodes out every Monday. You can listen to the show on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts.